Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to another episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast episode number five of our season nine and today my guest will be Mark Stavish he will return to the show and I'm very much looking forward to presenting you the talk I did with him in a moment I would like to say hello to everyone who has joined us here for this episode my name is Rudolf I am your creator and host of the Thoth Hermes podcast and I broadcast from the outskirts of the lovely Austrian capital of Vienna I hope you're all doing well out there and I welcome all of those who are here for the first time and if you are going to enjoy what you hear, you know what you do. Uh, even Mark Stavish has already done two other interviews on this show, but you can go and listen to, well, more than 140 episodes uh, on the website, of course. Go and visit our website, that's thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. But all the episodes are also available either on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts or whatever, or on all the big podcast providers. So go there and listen to whatever pleases you. And I'm sure you'll find enough to please you uh, among the more than 140 episodes. For those of you who are returners, well, glad to have you back. And I see we have more and more returners. So that's really nice. Um, welcome to all of you as well. And do also go to the website and leave me your messages. You have the possibility of leaving a voicemail on the website. Hardly anyone uses that. I don't know why you don't want me to hear your voices. Give me a reason, okay? Or you just use the contact form to send me a message. You can also send me email, info at thoughthermes.com. That address will also be to click on, on the website. Or you go to Twitter or Facebook or YouTube and leave comments there. So plenty of possibilities to leave me messages. Some of you do and do regularly, and that's very, very nice. I would also encourage you to, again, encourage you to send me, those of you who are musicians, who compose music, who perform music, to send me your tracks, to give me your music. I'd love to have more of that to play on this show. You know, I always play three tracks of music on the Thought Service podcast and um, I really like to have your thoughts about that, what you would like me to play. If it's your own music, it would be really great. Right. And also on the website, of course, and you know what's coming now. And yes, we need your support. We need your support more than ever, of course, like everyone. I know everyone is having those economic sides to cope with. So do we. And well, whatever you can do to support your podcast, then please go on the Patreon website, Patreon, and check out the Thos Hermes podcast page there. You can do it more easily. Go on the Thos Hermes website and click on the Patreon button. That'll bring you directly there. 
If you prefer rather do a one-off donation, that's also possible. Please click on the donation button on the website and you will be also brought where that can be done. Thank you so much for considering this and a special, th special thanks to those of you who have already been uh, patrons and many of you for quite some time. I really, I really am happy that you do that and not only happy, we, as I said, we need your support to maintain the quality and the frequency of that show. So that's great of you. Thank you. Yeah, well, what can I tell you now? Yeah, we're going to talk to Mark Stavish in a moment. But before that, as always, I'm going to play some music. And uh, well, the music today is a chant, more or less. Well, the first one, the other ones are, as always, you know me, it's a bit eclectic once again today. Um, the first one is really very much related to maybe not particularly the topic that uh, I'm going to talk to Mark in a moment, but on hermeticism, on occultism, also in that very case to Thelemic thought. So Akadua, I'm sure many, many of you, especially practicing occultists, know Akadua, that four-liner, which is a kind of hymn, chant, invocation, and is also used in certain traditions, um, in, in ritual, actually. So Akadua means oh high one and the one is of course the important thing especially for us hermeticists so oh high one may he be praised the one great of power the spirit great of dignity who places fear of himself among the gods and well at least that's the translation that I I think is correct and uh, well there are varying translations out there well, I'm not, I'm not reading hieroglyphs. I'm, I, I have no idea. I just can tell you what I think is really appropriate as a translation. Akadua. And we hear here, uh, the Akadua sung by, uh, a group of musicians, uh, under the leadership of James Stone, a sacred chant, Akadua. And, um, well, just let yourself fall into that music and Enjoy it.
Sacred Egyptian chant performed by James Stone and his group in a very lovely way, I believe. Mark Stavish is returning to the show and uh, as you know, and especially all of those who also read his blog and his, his, who are part of his Institute of Hermetic Studies, etc., know what a deep thinker he is, know about his books, know about his thoughts and um, his very clear way of expressing them. And that's what we're going to hear as well today. And, you know, I usually like to read some intro from a book or an article or so from my guest. And I was thinking, what could I do here today? And I, I will read to you a passage uh, from a blog entry that he made rather recently in August this year about, well, the title of the blog entry was Ancient and Modern Magic. But let me read to you uh, the first part of that, because I think even though it's not exactly the subject we're going to talk about here today, um, it is an excellent intro because it touches all the same questions in the end. Here he comes. Many occult rituals might not be recognized as such at all, except by those knowing what to look for and where to find it. When the same rite that appeared so colorfully as a temple working is extended through varying time-space event tracks in quite different forms, few would suspect it was in progress. This type of ritualism calls for expert handling by experienced operators. It needs few externals, only the ordinary accessories of living and is worked in terms of word and will forming part and parcel of life experience. Expert ritualists build all these into a complete pattern of patterns, so that inner and outer life come together with a common conscious meaning. It is the regularity and reiteration of rituals that enhance the energies released through them. Old rite workers knew this well enough when they went over the same name or invocation again and again for perhaps hours. Some rites specify a triple reiteration of every name of power in three variant ways. We may be reminded of the bellman saying, I have told you once, I have told you twice, what I tell you three times is true. Perhaps the adage occurs to us that if a lie is told often enough, everyone believes it. There is great mystical reality to be found here. What we believe long enough eventually does come true. It may make thousands of years or millions in some cases or in other, maybe moments. As humans, our natural state is that of cosmos. And when we allow ourselves to live otherwise or are caught into chaotic forces beyond our control, we get into trouble. The companions of chaos are not at all interested in living our way, but it is to their advantage if we accept their life pattern to any extent, for this enables them to tap our natural energies for their own purposes. Put into childish clarity, this means that while we live cosmically, the goodies get the benefit, and while we live chaotically, the baddies stack up the loot. 
The former are pro and the latter anti-evolutionary so far as we are concerned. It would suit the Celtics very nicely if humanity might be persuaded to live in spiritual servitude to the pattern of anti-cosmos, thereby supplying the companions of chaos with useful surplus energy until there is no more left worth having because we are approaching extinction. On the other side, the companions of cosmos would prefer that our energies were directed according to the same pattern as their own natural expression, plus, of course, any force convertible from the chaotic state. To their way of thinking, mankind should evolve the cosmic way until material manifestation is transcended altogether and new points of perfection become nuclei for us in ever finer state of existence. Faced with these alternatives from which to choose an ultimate destiny, mankind continues to vacillate from one to the other. Well, if you want to read on, you have to go to Vox Hermes, the blog of Mark Stavish, and I will put the link, of course, in the show notes to it. But now, for the moment, let's go and meet him in person and talk about dualism, about non-dualism, about traditionalism and perennialism, and many other very actual things. I'll be back in about uh, 33 minutes with more music for you. And now let's meet Mark Stavish. Here comes the interview. I have been looking forward very much to have Mark Stavish back on the show for the third time here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. And it's lovely, Mark, to have you back and welcome here on Thoughts Hermes. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be back. All the same here. So we decided today to talk about a couple of, I think, not so easy subjects in different ways not easy because um, a it will ask for some kind of definitions that can be hard and then also we have to probably talk about some realities that might sound harsh to some ears but uh, I think we both agree that things need to be said in the way they need to be said and, uh, and that the opinion needs to be free and can be told so uh, let's try to talk and start uh, about the dualism non-dualism issue on one hand and then maybe later we move on we'll see where the talk will carry us into the question of tradition and traditionalism and perennialism and all all that subject but also what it means today of course we're not talking about historical facts we're talking about what it is for today so Mark, um, dualism is and non-dualism, as it opposite, um, are two terms that are used a lot. And moving from one to the other is something that many spiritual searchers are finding very important for themselves, rightly so, probably. Um, but I get the impression sometimes, and with your help, we'll try to make that a bit clearer. That especially the term dualism can mean so many different things. So head off, what would be your personal definition of in the, in the sense that we are talking here about the hermetic sense, in the, in the sense of, of um, spirituality and esotericism? What is dualism for you, Mark Stavish? I think when we're, we're looking at these terms, especially when we're talking about non-dualism, that's really 
a recent term to my knowledge that mm-hmm. we see imported from um, Indian and Tibetan studies and, and imported really in the last, I think realistically, we can say the last 10 years and probably only has gained a lot of traction in the last five. Uh, it's not that the notion wasn't there previously. It was, but uh, the language, I don't believe that the terminology was there as very, and as precise because because we see the ideas presented in, in uh, Buma. Buma has this whole notion, but the, the language, yes. and, and this is very important, we have real problems with terminology and definitions in Western esotericism. Uh, there is not a good lexicon. There is not a good standard uh, usage of language. Now, the same exists, exists in other systems, too. Uh, I remember several years ago, speaking with a Tibetan Lama, he's, he's very nice fellows, won several, <clears throat> excuse me, won several awards. And he was writing a dictionary of Tibetan terms and their various uses, because even their use changes, not only within the practice, bodhicitta being a perfect example, uh, but also from school to school. So you have the four or five mm-hmm. major schools and then subgroups, and, and these terms can have different meanings. Well, we suffer from that, but I, I think you know, on, on an even worse level, uh, because individual schools, modern and such, tend to have a grab bag approach. And they uh, like words like karma, akasha, you understand where I'm going here? Uh, uh, reincarnation. They, gra- <laughs> they grab these terms and uh, they don't always have the same use across the board. So I just want to make that clear. So uh, dualism is what we deal with. We're dealing with time space. So whenever you're dealing with time space, we're dealing with duality. Now, time space is not limited to our three-dimensional sense of time and space, but of course exists across a spectrum. That spectrum within Hermeticism goes to um, at least the seventh sphere. Some might argue the eighth and ninth, but at least the seventh. And within Kabbalah, you see it going up the tree. And then we still have some duality at Binah. There's, of course, this is depending on your school, your, your point of view. But it, mm-hmm. it's so subtle that it's almost a gateway. It, it's kind of like, is it? Uh, how does it go? Is it a, uh, oh, what is it? You know, when you're looking at light, that doesn't become, you know, is it one thing or another? What they say about light, is it uh, 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 darkness or? Um, you no, know, it's, it's a physics principle. It escapes me at the moment. But you, uh, you're, you're perceiving. Uh, a, wave, a wave, you mean? Yes, wave that's or, it. That's uh, exactly, yeah, yes, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. What is, a, wa- a wave or, um, I don't find the other term, yeah, but so, I think we all know what you mean. Yeah. So yeah. depending on yeah. your perception depends on what you're going to experience or, or, or perceive. And then, um, of course, to talk about things beyond that is, is nearly impossible in our language because, again, language is uh, dimensional. But th- there, are, there are examples attempting to express it, which we call unity. And, and even within that sense, that unitive feeling then gives rise to this notion of, well, we're all one. Well, we're not all one. The Buddha never said, my enlightenment is your enlightenment. <laughs> So where, yeah. where is this unity? What is this fundamental unity? Is it the ground of being? Okay, so that would be good because you have that in Tibetan Buddhism and you have that in, in Indian and you have that in Bhima, the ground of being, right? So is there yeah. unity there? 
so we have to be careful with this. So we have to say that duality is anything having to do with time and space, even on the psychic level, even on the very, very subtle psychic level. And you, and then unity would be anything which is not that. So we almost instantly move into a negative theology. But when you talk about hermeticism, you talk about the hermetic one from which emanates yeah. time and space. And what is that one? That's not that's not non-dualism. That wouldn't be the same. What is? How would you see that hermetic one? Well, then we have. And again, I'll use this as a cop out. <laughs> we have <laughs> we have the first cause. <laughs> you know, you know, something we call God sneezed. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and something happened. And then we got from the primary cause, we got the secondary causes. And those secondary causes are what we call duality. And that primary cause is, of course, the source of them. But it's not a source as if it stands back, but it's all it's all encompassed within it because there is no place where that first cause isn't. So we have to begin to wrap our mind around that. And, and this is where we get into that notion of magical thinking or the magical worldview or the foundational philosophical view that what we think of as time space or perceive as time and space is not empty. So on a physics level, this becomes easier because we know that the air around us has a variety of um, elements in it. So it is composed. We experience it as a single all encompassing air, but really uh, someone who is a, a chemist can break it down into its various constituent elements. Someone yeah. who is in physics may be able to take those constituent elements and break them down even further. Okay. So our perception is not reality. Now we begin to work our mind around that. We begin to accept that, but then how do we apply that? And the application of that connectedness, but I think interconnectedness is a better term because often the connection is not direct, but it's through a series of, uh, relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give an example. Um, it's like, and this is why a family is a good example or a tree, because you have the roots, you have the trunk, you have the uh, cellular system, you have the, even the uh, circulatory system of the tree where, where water and sap go through. Then you have the branch and the leaves and the fruit. So it's all interconnected and it's all one tree, but it's not all the same thing. And somehow that water gets sucked up through the, the, those roots, goes all the way through the tree and ends up in the fruit that you eat. So there is a series of stages in this. And what we do in magic or in alchemy is we seek to manipulate those stages, understand them, but also to manipulate them to speed up the process of whatever it is we're doing. Now we may call that the maturing of metals. Uh, we may call that a magical act. Okay. Yeah. Um, remember, all magic is about that. We're trying to compress time and space. That's True. that's what we're doing. We have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why do it? If time and space don't matter to you, then 
Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I don't say it irritates me, but that's why I am sometimes a bit lost. And I'm happy that you just said that this term non-dualism in the way it's being used often nowadays is rather new because it hasn't occurred to me 20 years ago to be so present as exactly as you said. And um, sometimes you get the impression when you do dualistic magic in the way you just expressed it you're missing out on something and uh, i i don't think that would be true i think it's just two different approaches to 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 the matter or would you see it differently i think there is an issue in terms of operative on a, on a operative level mm. and uh to do any occult operation, alchemy, magic, uh, even out-of-body experiences, psychic stuff, requires energy. We, not, we need to have the juice. So we can call that the, the Shekinah, or we can call that the Shakti. We can call that the, the Prana, the first Pran, first element of life, which is really important to understand. That's what it means. The first element of life. It doesn't mean air. It doesn't mean energy. It's life, the life force. Life, okay? yeah, yeah. So you need that. And um, where are you getting this from? And when we pull, so to speak, or acquire it on the level of duality, we're creating stress in the system that then has to be rebalanced. Now, all magical acts are of stress on the system. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a cause and effect. There'd be no action and reaction. Mm -hmm. Our question is, are we, do we have enough energy for that to function or happen? So what we do is we seek to increase our energy load. So when you do deep breathing or pranayama or any of this stuff, what you're attempting to do is increase the amount of undifferentiated energy you have so that you can differentiate it in the action. Mm -hmm. Your thought is undifferentiated until you think of a thing, then it's differentiated. You see, then it goes from singularity or unity to duality. Yes. Okay, goes from yes. Yes. cause to effect. So mm -hmm. when you begin an operation, there are not many psychic centers you can f direct your attention to without creating an imbalance, just because you live in duality anyhow. It, it, you know, it's just not mm -hmm. possible. One of the things you can do is spend a considerable amount of time, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever you go, focusing on, what we call the crown or Keter, if you like in Kabbalah, yeah. because at least yeah. that has a direct access to the undifferentiated energy, undifferentiated consciousness, even if we're not fully aware of it. And we can become more and more aware of that. Now, the more we are aware of that, and I'll remind listeners, Amwork had a great exercise about that in the ninth degree, which we've talked about in the past. They had a spectacular practice for that. Okay. Um, which is the basis of all esoteric practices, by the way, even this, mm -hmm. e even what we call generation and completion stage in Vajrayana. Okay. Even yeah. that. Uh, just remind listeners quickly. I know what you're talking about, but just quickly what this exercise looks like. Well, this one was in particular is very nice because you visualize a series of circles around yourself. And as you do it, you have to adjust your perception of your relationship to your environment. 
So mm-hmm. in the first one, you're aware of your environment, but it's not impacting in you on you. Then in the next one, you're no longer aware of your physical environment, but you're becoming more acutely aware of the psychic, which means mental and emotional experiences around and within you get that around and within. Mm-hmm. And then in the final one, you direct your attention solely into the awareness of self as self of pure, pure yeah. beingness. What is pure beingness? And uh, because whatever we identify with is an, is what we become. Whatever we identify with is the nature of all magical acts, whether it's assumption of the God form or deity yoga, this or, or the psychological principles in uh, psychosynthesis of acting as if that which we identify with our energy goes to and becomes more fulfilled. So, you know, when you begin a magical practice, you identify with this undifferentiated energy and the capacity to direct and move it. That's that's the creative principle of the cosmos. That's the God within. And, and you even see that to some degree in the old text, uh, such as the Key of Solomon and the Goetia and these things, whereas the magician begins his ritual by invoking these divine forces. And only when... Yes. Only when there is an experience, a, conf- a confirmation to some degree that this has been realized, does he then begin to invoke the powerful dualized forces, extreme forces uh, of the of the angels of the demons. Mm-hmm. And in uh, El Kohen, there was a whole series of practices that could go on for hours until, you know, the, the thing, the thing, the show's, was there and only when it was there could you then begin the rest of the ritual yeah that meant, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. what that means is there was juice there was energy and life there yeah yeah well i i think even in such a so to speak easy ritual like the 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 the, the, the pentagram ritual you do the kabbalistic cross first exactly for that to create awareness and juice as you as you call it to to be able to 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 do the pentagram ritual it's just an easy thing like that i think the, i think the, that the, the necessity is always there i think that the, the 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 kabbalistic cross is one of the most underrated practices there is agreed agreed And you can also train that for hours and always improve it. And I would really tell you to do that because it's important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you do that, you can do that anywhere. You can do that anytime. Uh, I'll give you a little hint. We we had a uh, brief article we published somewhere on uh, Vox Hermes uh, on uh, how to use the Kabbalistic cross in, in new ways. But let's just say fundamentally this. Get in the habit of doing it anytime you have to do anything important. Mm. So you have to Mm. give a presentation, you have to give a speech, you have to have something that is has maybe a sacred element to it, a sacerdotal presence. Do it. Do it two, three times. No one knows. You don't have to wave your hands around. Use your 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 whole being to identify with this this openness. And, and uh, you'll find do it across the day half a dozen times, your ritual work will improve dramatically.
Absolutely. I hear that you use the term duality rather than dualism. So is that just a linguistic thing or do you make a distinction to something else that we call dualism, maybe the religious dualism like Qatarism or, or Manichaeism? Uh, would that be would that be dualism or is it just a term that you use because you prefer it? I, I think uh I don't really think about it that deeply. Uh, however, it really does come down to what, how you've described it. Dualism ism is a philosophical view and duality is yeah. what I'm working with here and now. So duality for me is just the reality of time space that I, I real life. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And I think um, and dualism is important too, because we, we have to understand that, as you've said, there are various schools and views of it, and we should be familiar with them so that we don't, again, think that when we're speaking with someone about it, that we're all talking about the same thing. I'll always define your terms. It, sa mm -hmm. it saves a lot of argument, as Disraeli said. Absolutely. Do you think that uh, religious dualism now, if to use that term, like Qatarism, just to take Gnosticism, the classical Christian Gnosticism, would you would you think that this plays a role in understanding um, the dualistic approach that you that you described, or does it just create more confusion because it's a it's a very different approach to things? I th I think for a student of philosophy and ideas, it's important. But from a practical point of view, I think you're better off dealing with what Agrippa talks about and dealing with uh, the practical aspects of, of things. Uh, because the dualism of the Gnostics, the classical dualism, uh, was very much a product of its time. Life was hard. It was cold. It was short and it was brutal. And these folks were looking for a way out. And in many ways, you see the same in India, Tibet, China, in these places where many people undertook extreme religious practices, spiritual practices for the purpose of liberation. Uh, they just did not want to deal with the, the again, brutal realities of physical life because it, yeah. it is very hard. So physical life was declared bad by itself and something else uh, uh, beyond that was the only aim, right? So to speak, yes. that's the, that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's go a little bit still to this non-dualism question because do you have an explanation why uh, it has created so much buzz over the last years. Um, do you see a reason for that? Is it just a stronger interchange in cultural levels with the East? Or is there any other reason to it? A psychological reason, maybe a sociological reason behind it that in the West, this has become such a popular term? Well, I think you hit all of them. Uh, I believe a, a big part of it is because there is a easy access to uh, some fairly good Indian teachings and some higher Dzogchen teachings that simply was not available uh, 50 or 100 years ago, uh, so or even maybe 40. So you have access to these, these higher teachings, which also means the ease of access means they're easily misunderstood. And uh, 
the idea of non-dualism is fundamentally appealing. And if we take Dzogchen as an example, there's even profound warnings within it about this non-dualism that just because you have an idea of what non-dualism is, just because you have an experience maybe of what this is, this does not mean that you no longer have to practice. This does not mean that anything you do is all right. And I think part of what we see with non-dualism is an abuse of it in an attempt to justify or rationalize uh, a variety of, uh, of vices and ills. Because when we look at non-dualism and we realize that, oh, the physical world isn't bad. The physical world isn't something. That enlightenment is here. That samsara nirvana of the same taste. Well, what does that even mean, samsara nirvana of the same taste? It says that samsara, which is not suffering but duality, okay, and nirvana or enlightenment, not unity, but enlightenment, are of the same taste. They're of the same source. So it means that our perceptions, something whether it being of one nature or another, is a matter of perception. And that comes from the same source, our own mind, our own being. So uh, when we look at it in that terms, you can see how this is very appealing for someone who simply does not want to practice. And it says that in the literature, the original literature, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago. <laughs> Don't use this as an excuse not to work, as an excuse not to practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, you get the impression, at least, that many of um, non-dualistic practitioners, they are very aesthetic, um, aesthetic, uh, to pronounce it properly, uh, people who are working hours in the way they work in meditation and in concentration and etc. It, it seems to be very strainful some for some of them. No, I think it all depends on who you meet. Uh, I've met a few like that. Most of the ones I've met are more of what I call, and I hate to use this term in a derogatory sense, but the, 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 the hippie variety, uh, it, it's mm. more of a, uh, it's just a slackers, you know, they're, mm. they're trying to use it as a way to avoid, uh, avoid work and, and use it. But, you know, again, it depends on who you meet, the circles you run in. And, and both of these are, are talked about in the classical literature that one has to find a moderation in their practice and, and, and bring everything into daily life. That's the real point is that's why, hey, when you're reminding yeah. yourself, when you're doing that Kabbalistic cross, you're reminding yourself. And after you've done that pause, always pause and feel to the best of your capacity, open up to the best of your capacity to that joy, that inner bliss, that, that Rosicrucian trinity, right? Light, life, and love. Okay? Light, life, and love. And that's not, that's not new. That's old. That's on the old Rosicrucian documents. Okay? We've seen them in German, all of us, sometimes in Latin. Light, life, and love. Yeah. And you see them on the Golden Dawn headings, etc., yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, which makes me ask you: um, Who does one, whatever you do as a spiritual work, as a magical work, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for improving yourself in order to improve something else with what you have improved in yourself, or are you doing it to 
improve the world in the first place? Oh boy, you know, that's, that's a big question. So when we look at any operation of any kind, and that means even getting out of bed in the morning. Okay, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Okay, why do you do what you do? And when we talk about an occult operation, an esoteric operation, what we're talking about is doing what we normally do, but doing it on steroids. Again, we're talking about doing what we normally do, but trying to compress the time frame between cause and result. Yeah. That needs to be understood. So that's why the literature and the, the, the adepts constantly tell us that the more intense your focus, the faster the result. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you want to do magical acts to impress your friends, as we see some people do, mm-hmm. um, that comes with it a certain risk. Yes. Uh, If you want to do magical acts uh, with the idea that uh, you will then sell your services uh, as a, as a sorcerer for hire, uh, that will come with certain risks. And I think in, in today's environment, we need to understand that if you are really, really very good at what you do along those lines, then, um, people will come looking for you and not necessarily people who you want to be around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the problem with that kind of fame is, uh, historically noted to be, uh, uh, highly undesirable in, in most of our circumstances. Now there are exceptions to that. We see in India, we see Tibet, we see China, Uh, examples of where, where that was expected. And we see in other cultures where it's expected, but historically for us, those in Europe, North America, uh, at best you could be dismissed as a fraud or an entertainer. And at worst you are sought out by again, uh, people who, uh, who whose uh, interest in your power is interest in your power and you need to deliver. Uh, mm-hmm. So who was it? Uh, remote viewer number one, I believe, uh, probably one of the most accurate remote viewers there was, they, they said. And of course, he dies mysteriously in a hotel room in Las Vegas. And at the time, they were pretty certain it was the KGB. So yeah. you have to have wisdom. You know, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. So if you have areas, and this is again where magic fails, people undertake magical operations, but they don't have a channel for its outlet. So um, whatever karmic energies they have within themselves, karmic energies means predispositions or habits. Those just get accentuated because that's what you're working with. Uh, So can I always say all magic is destabilizing in nature. It's inherently destabilizing. It has to, it has to be to work. So, yes. um, if you undertake magical operations to help someone else, then of course, we're constantly told, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, you know, keep it silent. Uh, silence is, is the key. Uh, 
who was it? Uh, Elephus Levy had some some great Elephus Levy, yeah, some yeah. great comment, great paragraph about how magic flees the public uh, eye. Mm-hmm. So, why we undertake it is going to decide what we get out of it. It's the same way with those listening here. You know, if if they if they listen to this discussion between you and I as just you know two guys talking, they can get something out of it. If they listen to it as two experienced esotericists with a lot of time for better or worse under their belt, they can get more out of it. If they think that for a brief second, maybe we really do know what we're talking about and are holding a lot back. uh, They can get even more out of it because their trust is there. And so, as it says, how you, how you come to a conversation from a teacher you know, if you listen to them like a dog, then you get what a dog gets. If you listen to them like a human, then you go to humans. But if you listen to them like it's an enlightened being or the voice of God, then that's what you get. Yeah. Because it resonates deep within you and you're able to bring that forth more, more readily. So the reason you undertake an operation is going to define and decide the totality of the outcomes of that on, on every level. For better or yeah. worse, yeah. That that sounds to me like a good reply to people who would say, who extreme thinkers who would say, only um, the mystic experience is the true esoteric work because every practical work is by nature black magic because it changes something to nature, right? Um, I mean, that's an extreme thinking, yes, but it, it does exist. I've heard that many right? times. I I, be- yeah. I believe even. Uh, Manly P. Hall was uh, was guilty of that. I, I could be wrong, but I you see a lot of that. Oh, okay. You see a lot of that moralizing. I think Alice Bailey might have had it too. There's a lot of moralizing in which everything is meant to keep, and it, it's a form of Gnosticism, really, in that way. Everything's meant yeah. to be kept in this ethereal mental realm. But you know, let's just use an example from uh, what several teachers told me over the years. And this applies to alchemy in particular. And this applies to the body of light and some very advanced practices. That's why I'm saying it to you. Or even to that practice that we talk about in the ninth degree some time ago on the cloud. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment on the level of mind is easy. Enlightenment on the level of the emotions or speech, thought word indeed, speech or energy, the energetic structures, that's that's more difficult. Enlightenment on the level of the body is the hardest of all. And if we go back to the Corpus Hermeticum, the Emerald Tablet, what does it say that it is here on, on earth that it is perfected? Mm-hmm. Yeah, here on earth that is yeah. perfected yeah uh, very important point because when you think the easy way it's mostly thought the other way around but I, I couldn't agree more with what you said okay it's time to take our musical break I warned you already it's going to be eclectic again the music that you hear here today We heard that ancient Egyptian sacred chant to start with, and now there is some 
Renaissance music, some piece which I find just astonishing. So that piece dates from the 16th century and it is sacred music, of course, at the time many or most of the big pieces were sacred and big it is. It has been uh, written by Alessandro Strigio, a musician of that time, and it's called Ecce Beatam Lucem, and it's a motet, so a choral piece for 40 voices, 40 different voices. It's only one of two existent pieces like that with 40 voices, imagine. And of course, it was meant to be performed in those big cathedrals where the echo of the voices all melted together. It's to me, it's just an extraordinary sound experience. It's Exebeatam Lutzem, see the beautiful light um, uh, text, uh, uh, church text uh, from the from the Christian church. But it is especially the, the, the way it's being composed and sung by the chorus. We hear it being performed quite extraordinary. Well, I love it. I hope you'll enjoy it too. After that, we'll return to Mark and continue our talk, our exciting talk about all matters, also some very actual matters of today. And at the end of the interview, another classic, but it's Mozart. Mozart from my home country here, Austria. And it's a piece from his free Masonic cantata, uh, uh, cantata, which talks to the well, the, the great architect of the universe, uh, very to say it very clearly. And it, the, air, the aria we hear from that cantata is, the cantata is called Dia Seele des Weltalls. So for you, the soul of the universe, right? And the aria is called Dia Danken wir die Freude. We thank you for the joy in our lives, right? So that comes after the interview. And after that, I will return with the announcement of next week's episode. So, once again, Ecce Beatam Lucem, a quaranta voci, motet for 40 voices by Alessandro Strigio of the 16th century. Then we come back to the 21st century with Mark Stavish, and we go back to the 18th century with the Masonic music by Mozart, Dir danken wir die Freude to end and not quite the end because I'll talk to you after that about next week. But for now, enjoy this extraordinary piece of music.
We have been speaking about this dualism, non-dualism case, so to speak. And when we speak about non-dualism, somehow, uh, for right or for wrong, uh, you might see both possibilities. Um, non-dualism seems to be linked to uh, another movement that has been in public opinion a lot lately, which you either call traditionalism or even though it's not exactly the same perennialism um, so about tradition that arose basically in the in the 19th century in that sense in that terminology um, and I thought it would be nice to hear you talk about that as well because I know you have dealt with that quite a bit and I think it has also very many practical links to nowadays, but let's not move on too fast. Maybe let's talk about first, what is traditionalism? What is it as opposed to perennialism? How do you see that? Well, when we deal with perennialism, again, ism, a philosophical view, uh, we're looking for those things which are eternal, those things which are constantly found across a variety of beliefs, almost universal. So we're looking in a, in a way at almost a kind of universalism. Maybe not necessarily so with everyone, uh, mm. but at least in the, the big thinkers of perennialism uh, appear to spend much of their time based on limited time and, and limited resources, focusing on those larger philosophical systems and questions that would allow them to see what these common threads were. And the, these common threads uh, were seen as a kind of the basis for human spiritual development. Spiritual development being not an abstraction, but a cultural development a philosophical view, a mental insight, a flash of genius that linked humanity or the individual temporarily to some something other. And that otherness then inspired to undertake an action, which could result in a variety of uh, improvements to the individual, the community, the society as a whole. So we have to keep that in mind. It's not as if it's simply looking at uh, philosophy for its own sake. All of these things have a, a practical application at some point, even if we forget that, even if we just get caught up in ideas, because it's very easy for us now uh, being very much in our heads most of the time to get very caught up in ideas and ignore mm -hmm. the, the practical applications of someone living 500 or 1,000 or 2,000, 3,000 years ago you know, and what their needs were. Their needs are very yeah. different. So we have we, we see it with our eyes and it's very hard with our eyes and ears to 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 perceive in a way that they perceived at the time. Yes. And, and we have to get out of our own way. We have to get out of our own way to have an enlightenment. We have to get out of our own way. And what does that mean? Let go of our our, our grasping sense of self. Relax, relax our hold on our sense of self. It'll come back. Don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be back. And just relax enough so that you can have some, some room, some space within yourself to allow ideas to, to flow and fold and unfold. And uh, 
that's really what we're talking about with a lot of these practices is reshaping ourselves so that our narrow sense of self is over time uh, redone and redone and redone. So that's not narrow anymore. It's broader, broader and broader. And we begin to, again, the operative word is identify, identify with uh, things which we call bigger than ourselves. Bigger means more complete, more full, more potent, more powerful. Those would be the gods, the goddesses, uh, enlightened beings, the adepts, the, the academy of heroes, whatever you want to call it, the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Tradition in the sense that the traditionalist philosopher, writer, thinker uh, would mean it, I think, is something that is divinely ordained, a truth that is divinely ordained to mankind, right? That yes. is unchangeable yes. and um, it has implications how you handle that truth. Uh, would, would you agree on that definition? Definitely. And across the spectrum of your life, it has, has implications across everything that you do. So, mm-hmm. so that, uh, and I think what's interesting is tradition requires a traditionalism requires a connection to the eso- to the exoteric. Okay. In what sense? Well, that you can't be a traditionalist without being part of your exoteric culture and religion. Mm-hmm. Because the esoteric aspect illumines that. It does not exist apart from it. So does the traditionalist in that sense yeah. have to have, has to be a practitioner of one of the uh, world religions to, Usually, to, yes, to call it like that. He, he must be, he, he cannot be a, a free thinker or, a, or, or a hermeticist or some without God. Um, is that not possible? Well, yeah, because think about it. How, how can you practice any of those, like say like El coin, how can you practice that without an understanding at least moderately of, of Catholicism sure. of its time and sure. what French call, and French Catholicism in particular? Um, yeah. How can you practice? You can't be a Sufi without, to some degree, being Muslim. Yeah, you know, it's it's just. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some exceptions out there. I hear about them, but I, I don't know really what they are, because almost every Sufi I run into is Muslim. Now they'll say Sufism is beyond Islam, and I've had some people point out to me how Sufism even holds uh, Greek theurgic text uh, from Plotinus. Uh, within it, but that's irrelevant because the form, the exterior, the mm-hmm. exoteric, if you will, is that of the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. do you have to be Jewish to study Kabbalah? I said, I was asked that. I said, no, but of course, Jews would disagree. They would say yes. Not, not all of them. It is, but uh, and it's probably a different way of Kabbalah that we study as with a Christian background than 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 uh, that a rabbi would study Kabbalah, right? Oh, it's radically different. It's tremendously yeah. different. Absolutely. But but you can inform yourself tremendously uh, by trying to understand what we would call then call traditional or kosher Kabbalah, because its insights are sometimes far more pronounced, profound, and easier to digest than a lot of the um, heavily, we'll just say mutated various things that we often get in the late 20th, early 21st century. Uh, yeah. You know, those of 
something's got beat up pretty good <laughs> you know, on their way to market. That fruit got bruised. <laughs> <laughs> I Isn't there some lady singer who we think of now at the moment? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Absolutely. No, I see. I see. Really, but um, do you want to, to, to tell us a bit about uh, where the term perennialism then came from? In what context? Why is it being used in that context? Oh, I, I, I forget. <laughs> I, I'd have to look. Okay. I'd have to look that up. Uh, you know, because I, I think uh, I think Huxley, it, it comes from the Renaissance times. I think it was coined there, right? I believe so. But Huxley seemed to have uh, made it popular yeah, well, in the twentieth uh, century. So, yeah. But I think That's it's an, I think it's really important for people to be familiar with perennialism because. Again, if we see it in the Renaissance, what were they looking for? That Renaissance magic was a combination of Jewish Kabbalah, mm. Catholic, Catholic theology, and mystical theology. I think folks really underestimate the power of some of those Catholic mystical uh, practices, mm -hmm. particularly the Jesuits. Uh, I think it's radically un, uh, dismissed too, too readily. Uh, and then we also have... The, the, the pagan revival, we'll call it the original neo-paganism. And of course, mm -hmm. then the theurgy that survived, the Greek theurgy, pagan theurgy, that survived coming out of the collapsing Eastern Empire. And all of this is... When you, when you, sorry, when you talk about the, the original paganism, what period are you thinking of or what the, 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 region? The original neo-paganism would be the Renaissance, because yeah. it's a rebirth of... The, the Renaissance, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. so what yeah. we're seeing all of this taking place, and they're looking at... What are the common threads here? And, and many of them believe, I, I, I don't know when it stopped, but there are, there's a painting of uh, Hermes with Moses in one of the uh, Vatican uh, chapels, because yeah. again, Hermes was seen as a contemporary of Moses for the longest time. Yeah. So that's a kind of a form of, that, I would call that a form of perennialism, where they're looking at mm -hmm. truths. Now, whether some will argue it's, well, that's purely for propaganda value. They're just trying to show every, that, that Christ has come to fulfill the law, and this is just a continuation of that. I, I think that's to some degree true, but not universally true. There were tremendous thinkers then, and, and that, would be, uh, that would be too simple of an excuse for many of them. Many of them had tremendous uh, respect for uh, the classical period. And when you see the origin of perennialism as a term in that period, it cannot be confused with universalism because that wouldn't have been possible to think of at the time, right? Yes. That, that, universalism that, that, is something different. No. And I think we now, again, this is how terms kind of change. Perennialism and universalism are the same, but boy, the way they're thrown about, it's almost as if they are. It's kind of like the way yeah. people use... Uh, transmigration and reincarnation mm, you know they, yeah they're not the same but they just get thrown about as if they are and, and there's even different ideas about what constitutes reincarnation you know we we think of it as a very simple term uh i'm a human being i die i come back as a human being and that just kind of cycles through it's far more complex than that yeah absolutely absolutely one of the well, he's even seen sometimes of the creator, you can't say that, but some people say it, uh, of, of traditionalism is, of course, René Guénon uh, yes. and his writings. Um, then we have, well, we have others which come more from the, from the eastern part of, the, of, of like, like Ananda Komaraswamy. Yeah. We have Fritjof Schwann, of yes. course. Um, but um, 
Oh, come on. Julie Somehow said you get... too. Say Evola. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, you lose Evola. I didn't want to omit it, but, but there is like, actually, there's even a dispute if he is a true traditionalist in the pure sense, because, of course, his, his ideas uh, are a bit different in the origin, right? But I, I agree. I mean, he, he is mentioned in that same, in that same um, field, absolutely. And, well, well, because you name him, of course, we often have heavy criticism of traditionalism nowadays. And now this is a tricky matter. I know if we go into that field, but why is that? And it's not just Evolites, it's the whole group of people. I often get the impression we can, well, people who, who react like that can make a confusion between tradition and traditionalism as a philosophical term, as you just did it, and tradition is bad. You know, uh, uh, or am I taking that too light? Well, no, we have to look. I mean, um, who was it? Uh, I've had a lot of media experience. I try to tell people that what goes on in media, they, they often don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, uh, you see uh, within the, the political structures uh, for the last, we'll say, 70 years, uh, a certain pushing of ideas that were designed to reduce friction, perceived friction. They were perceived as designed to reduce nationalism. Nationalism was seen as bad. So you had a kind of soft nationalism that was increasingly being, nationalism was increasingly being diminished because it was seen as bad. And uh, at the same time with that, a kind of soft absorption of, it's difficult with the words, uh, a utopian communism and not necessarily of the Soviet variety, but within the esoteric circles, uh, such as Alice Bailey. Bailey was a big proponent of this theosophy. And uh, I can understand why these folks were so big on one world government and one world religion. And that's what they were. We have to admit that. Um, mm -hmm. That it's in, the, it's in the literature. They say it very clearly. A rule by a spiritual elite is very clear because the horror of the First World War and the horror of the Second World War was so traumatic that they wanted to find some way of keeping that from happening. So they blamed it on anything that was different, that all, everyone was the same. So this utopianism becomes a both a vision within spiritual circles uh it reaches a high point in the 60s but it also merges with a host of other ideas uh, whether it's the environmental movement at that time for better or worse okay uh environmental movement you know is one thing environmentalism again ism is another environmentalism is now a religion Mm. Yeah. That's not the same as in the environmental science, which my wife teaches. Yeah. Okay. You see uh, a difference too with uh, 
multiculturalism is a religion. Mm. You know, all cultures are not equal. They are not interchangeable. People are not replaceable unless they're consumers. So when we deal with tradition, we're dealing with my culture, my language, my place. Mm. Those things are fundamentally the enemy of contemporary Western European politics. Those are the mm -hmm. fundamental enemy. They must be destroyed according to contemporary progressive political views, mm -hmm. which is interesting because progressive politics owns most new and emerging and contemporary religious movements in the West, particularly the United States. And as I've said to many uh, Western converts, you know, you do something no Tibetan would ever do. And they say, what's that? You abandon your culture. So now anything that is West is bad. Anything that is not West is good. Um, and that's fundamentally it. So you, you have this desire to dissolve everything down into lowest common denominator. Now, of course, if you're looking at perennialism, then the idea is that somehow the lowest common denominator is the light within us. Each one is a child of God. Yeah. Yeah, no. Not really. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> that that only works. Mm -hmm. That only works when people are willing to to play their part. Uh you you can look at someone as a child of God, but you know when they're holding a gun to your head, uh you still got to make some decisions that aren't quite necessarily going to involve uh, you know, saying namaste. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and, and there, I think there, and you see currently, you know, the situation in Europe is a perfect example of that, whether it be the, the sudden realization that, uh, you've, you've maxed, you've reached the point of non-integration with refugees. Mm. The critical point is 15%. Actually it's 5%, but at 15%, you have parallel societies. Mm. That's it. Now, these are numbers. You can like them or not like them. It doesn't matter. You just look at the reality on your streets. Yeah. You, have yeah. a, you have a war on your borders. Mm -hmm. It was one thing we know about the Russians. Everything is, everything is a nail and they are a sledgehammer. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when, when so, that's part of, you see, and that goes back to the idea of, I think that what we see in the West is this is a fruition of lies. The lie, which is the, the vice of hood. Okay. Mm. I don't mm. really mean what I say. I'm afraid to say what I mean. Mm -hmm. I'll let Mark do it because he'll say it. I'm really afraid to say it. So I'll let Mark do it. <laughs> I'm afraid to write it. So I'll let him do it. Okay. And this is, this is a reality. So mm -hmm. we're afraid to say what we mean. We're afraid to see what ha say what's happening in front of us. We're afraid to ask the questions because the hammer comes down. And now someone tells us, here's a red line. Don't cross it. Well, he doesn't mean it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One, yeah, one, yeah, one yeah. thing I remember growing up around Russians is they don't lie. <laughs> they don't bluff. Yeah. You know, they just don't. So yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. Now you can see what you want about that in terms of morals and ethics. Those are all irrelevant because again, those morals and ethics are your projections of what you think should or ought to be. Should be. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the universe isn't working that way. It doesn't work that way. So that's where I think a lot of this gets muddled and mangled. 
So that's why traditionalism is seen as bad because suddenly tradition means family. Tradition means religion. Tradition means culture. Well, wait a minute. Those are the things we're trying to destroy. And if you don't vote the way we want you to, Brussels says, we're going to come in and change things. Yeah. Well, yeah. who's the totalitarian yeah. there? Yeah. Yeah. And we do. And we do. Absolutely. We do. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is, look, I'm just saying, the, I'm just pointing out the obvious. I mean, I can tell you where this is yeah. going to go. You want me to play the part of profit? I'll tell you. You know, I've done it before. I'll do it again. But then people turn around and say, how did it get to this point? Well, because you weren't paying attention and you lied to yourself in the process. In time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But if you want, what will happen is the, if you want to preserve culture, which is cultural and tradition, then you you're able to preserve the transmission of esoteric ideas. Now, this is the critical part. Esotericism does not exist outside of a cultural context. It exists within it. So you can try and transmit it in a way that's deculturalized in a sense. And and I think Amork did, the Rosicrucian Order Amork did a pretty good job of that in the 20th century, which with the way it wrote its lessons, it did a pretty good job of putting things in very plain language so that people could have practices to do. I'm not too thrilled with what they've got now, but, but at least then they did a pretty good job of it. But even there, that whole notion was contextual because the European orders were horrified that they should do that. Why? Because the European orders wanted to be elite. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But at the same time, they were hiding their light under a bushel. But elite, elite in regards to what or to who? Themselves, really. They thought that they themselves were, you know, some special conduit to the invisible. And they were the, the you know, they, they were going to be the gatekeepers, the revealers of truth. But, you know, it didn't work out too well. I mean, you just look at the War of the Roses, between, you know, between yeah. the French Rosicrucian Martinists, and then you look at the schisms in the Golden Dawn. Um, yeah. you, you know, you can't hide your light under a bushel. Now, again, it doesn't mean you, you put it out there for everyone to see all the time. Mm. However, you know, we're in this world as practitioners. Some are in this world as teachers. Some are even in this world as adepts. Um, and with that comes the responsibility to indicate or suggest and at times show a more effective way of living mm. and dealing with these problems that are inevitable in life. Right. So going back to the question, many people look to spiritual practice as a way of bringing heaven on earth, bringing about a utopia, uh, but without they're really having to do anything to earn it. Uh, but isn't what you're saying a response to a question that I asked you earlier and in a more direct way, a response to when I said, why do you do this? Why do we do this? Is it to improve ourselves or to improve the world around us? Um, can it not only be because that's culture, um, improve yourselves with the hope that it then goes further, but without what you're doing to yourself, it won't go further. Well, that's correct. And I think we have to start out. And, and again, I'm, I'm staring across my room at bookshelves filled with tons of books and, and very few of them uh, ask the question, you know, why are you here? 
You know, mm-hmm. why are you here? Why are you doing this? And when you come to the esoteric path, you have to say, I'm undertaking this journey to understand myself better because I'm fundamentally unhappy with my life and my self-perception. And I want to change that. Now, if you do that, you're honest. But if you come to it and say, I want to study occultism and witchcraft or magic, whatever it happens to be, because I want to get a better job or a new girlfriend or a better car, that's okay. But you're still going to be who you are once that happens. So what you end up doing then is multiplying your problems rather than diminishing them. Mm. And this is where a lot of the traditional schools have failed because they failed to understand one, the necessity of what we would call those secondary practices of having an impact on the world. They keep it too abstract, too ethereal, too mystical, as we said earlier, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they fail to help people understand that you have to know what your reason for action is. You have to know why you want to take this path right. and, and that it's bigger than you at some point. Not yet. It's not there yet, but at some mm-hmm. point it's bigger than you. And, and I want to go back to this because, um, you know, in, in, in Martinism at the end of the third degree, and I don't know if it's all schools, but at least in, in some of them, you know, it says that, you know, now your, your job, you are the, the hope of the world rests on you. Don't forget it. Okay, so you're here to, to help improve the world in some way. It doesn't mean make it heaven on earth, but at least to improve it, not get involved in lineage arguments. Okay. You know, in, in Amwork, it would say in their ninth degree after about six years, you know, our job, our whole function as a school is to create adepts. Mm-hmm. They use the term avatars, which has a different meaning. But it's yeah. okay. But you think about it. Yeah. They tell you, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not here just to help you improve your life. That's nice. We're, we're glad you can, but that's not why we're here. Yeah. The Scottish Rite does it as well in, at least in our, in our German language rituals in two degrees, even in two of the higher degrees, it says we are here to create leadership and to create, uh, adepts. It yes, uses adepts. also that word if you translate it, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, yeah. and I think that we need to, and again, this is the, the struggle of dealing in the world we're in as you try to make things available to a wider group of people so that they can access it, improve themselves. You also run that risk of watering it down, it becoming misunderstood, it becoming adulterated in some way, that, that's just the risk. And on the other hand, the risk of not doing that is that you end up with a bunch of guys meeting in a room, you know, in, in Brussels or Paris or Berlin, you know, thinking they're, you know, they're the king of the world or whatever. And yeah, but your light's not going anywhere. You're not really having an impact on the world. I mean, maybe we can argue on some psychic level, but let's face it. You had better be a super duper adept because even Jesus, you know, ends up getting crucified. Now we can argue of his own will. He let it happen, but I don't see in the history a single adept that will say save the world. Mm. It was always a group of people. And then it only works for a period of time because energy is in motion. It's not a static event. Yes. So, yes. so we're, we're, we have to be a part of that movement forward. If you want to call it that, that 
Uh, yeah, and evolution is something that's so hard to explain that on the one hand you have tradition and the other side you have the necessity of evolution within every single of those movements because otherwise as you say the energy will pick itself up and will not be available anymore and you need to rebuild energy on other on other foundations well that's the that's the trap of the egregore or the egregore was you know that that's the connecting point from physical earth to the invisible and the conduits in between. And that battery has to constantly be recharged in order to be effective. And if, exactly. and if you have a healthy one, if you're in a healthy group, man, you're great. If you're in an unhealthy group, Oh, you got problems. You're in trouble. So this is just, I look at this as the, this is just the way the universe is. This is just what we live. This is it. And we come out here, you and I, and we do our best and we encourage others to do their best, but to, to make a difference and put your, put your neck on the line at some point, because you're going to be dead anyhow. And you're going to have to stand before those scales of Mott and, uh, and, and know whether you, stood as the golden dawn ritual says in my hour of trial or did you cower and i I simply see a lot of our a lot of our would-be practitioners now are are cowering and they're not encouraged or told now is the time to stand up now is the time you have to demonstrate to some degree the efficacy of these values the efficacy of these practices first in your own life but then in how that has a ripple effect and improves the world around you. Because as I've said to you earlier, you know, we are having world leaders talking about the use of nuclear weapons. Mm. And frankly, I don't think it's going to happen, but that doesn't matter. The fact is they're talking about it. Now that means a lot of people have been spending a lot of psychic energy thinking about this and the scenarios. And some of them are thinking they can, you, they can fight this, they can win this and they can survive it. Hmm. Now, what does that mean? Probably not large scale thermonuclear war as we think about it. I don't believe that. In fact, if that were to happen, we wouldn't have to worry. There's nothing to worry about because yeah. it's over. Exactly. Exactly. The worst thing is, and this is where people don't understand problem solving. They go to extremes. They think all or nothing. The worst thing is one or two small ones are used. Uh, and then the after effect of that. And the after effect, I don't mean radiation. I mean the entire effect it has on the world economy. Yeah. And how you can have things collapse down to the point where we're in the 18th century real fast. Now, if I'm scaring your listeners, well, you should be scared because it's my job as a prophet to tell you what can happen and to scare you. So that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So this doesn't happen. You know, we have Ukrainians who I I say are, are, I get annoy me now because they're talking about not defense, but revenge. Yeah. There's a difference. When we talk about revenge, you don't want Russia as a failed state. I mean, you've got to contemplate what that means if Russia as an entity, you know, fails even further. 
and collapses across its six time zones. Again, we end up in the 18th century real fast because of what that does to trade and a whole host of other problems. So no matter what you ideologically think or feel, no matter what your emotional responses are, no matter what your political vision is or who you think is right or wrong, the outcomes that we need to this uh, are something that we have to contemplate in terms of what is best for everyone. Yeah. Okay. And that's where the, the profound generation of goodwill is essential. The profound generation of goodwill. Uh, the Buddhists will call that bodhicitta or compassion. And compassion isn't weakness. You know, compassion doesn't mean you roll over. No. Okay. Exactly. But it takes a lot of compassion to recognize I may not like these folks, but I've got to figure out a way to work with them. And not, you know, they, it, they go ahead. Go well, ahead, that's please. just it. And it's not for them, but it's for me, my children, my grandchildren, and a host of people who have no idea this is even going on. Yeah. You know, this little addition that the Fraternita Saturni adds to, to the Selina saying of Crowley, it, it says, uh, love is uh, love under will, but love without compassion. Love without compassion. That's the addition the Fraternita Saturni puts there. And I think that's a very, very wise addition they do, they do there. That's exactly what you just, what you just meant. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, we're not talking about sentimentality. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It's compassion is something completely different. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Mark, thank you for putting your neck there because it's, it's, it's things that need to be said, but are difficult to be said sometimes. Um, but I'm sure our audience here understands what, where you're going and what we want to say here. Um, it's difficult times we all live in. And I, th I think, uh, esotericism occultism has a, a big role to play i would like you to to mention what you two days ago or so so this will be a week when this will be broadcast uh, ago you put on facebook you you cited hc lewis i believe yeah. about what should happen when well you say it with your words when the whole world would do one thing well, well, well and this is uh, from his his ninth degree Harvey lewis there's an excerpt from it from the 30s in which he said you know if the entire world were to focus on peace that for that period of time it simply would be a condition created, which would be impossible for anything unharmonious to take place. And, and I think this is really important because, again, there's this notion of all or nothing. He says the entire world because of just the way he would speak, but it doesn't take the entire world. Uh, those of us who have trained in esotericism, have trained our minds, uh, you know, our thoughts are not like soap bubbles, at least in theory. They don't just come up and pop, that they should have a certain focus, or at least for a period of time, we should be able to focus them to, to generate a clear, concise, I say the word image, but what I mean is a total evocative scenario or scene. A awareness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah a total yeah. awareness. And, and mm. if we do this and you get a, what I call a sizable minority, I don't know what that is. I can't give you a number, but I think I think I have an idea as to what it is. But you you get a sizable minority focusing around a particular a particular goal or idea, and what will happen is it moves it forward. So if we get the majority of people, as many as we can, at least for a period of time every day, 
sending out thoughts of goodwill, particularly around this uh, war in the Ukraine and Russia, and to the leaders. Amwork used to do that all the time. They called it Metafocus, where the the groups, mm. and you would see, I remember when they used to do it specific, they'd have a, a picture of the leader of the month, and then usually like a month or two later, you'd see something in the news about them. Uh, but it's always around goodwill, okay? You're not trying to force an outcome, like a specific outcome. Mm-hmm. You're letting... You're letting, we'll call it the cosmos, take care of that. You're letting the cosmic mind, if you will, okay, intelligence. We're letting that sort that out. We're just putting Mm -hmm. energy into it so that it happens, okay, that we want to be a part of this. This is the future I want for myself, for my children, my grandchildren, for the rest of the world, one in which this thing ends now, Mm. okay? It ends for in a way that is good for everyone. I don't know what that is. I don't know what good, but I certainly know continuation of it is bad for everyone. Absolutely. Let the cosmic mind decide what is good, but give him the energy. Right, saying this is a direction you want to go in. Because what we're doing is we're shaping the energies of Yesod in a Kabbalistic sense. We are shaping the energies of Yesod, okay? And we're, we're pulling more into it. We're generating more energy in Yesod so that it will have a healthy effect in our environment, on ourselves, and, and on the planet. And uh, look, I mean, that's that's what we're here to do. Uh, not necessarily dictate outcomes, but encourage beneficial outcomes. And we have to trust the system to some degree to have that. We have to trust this higher mind, this cosmic mind, whatever we want to call it, the God within, whatever we want to call it. Right. Well, Mark, I think this was a perfect final word for our talk here um, thank you for for your wisdom for your openness for your talk for everything uh, it was great to have you and i'm sure it has not been the last time here uh, thanks again and uh, well good luck for all your your ventures anything you want to mention about your upcoming plans or you want to let people know oh sure and i'm glad you asked because this just started recently. Uh, The Institute for Hermetic Studies has been uh, able, through the support of its patrons and donors, uh, to place complete copies of its publications in, so far, half a dozen major research libraries. And this would include uh, Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, uh, the the Manly P. Hall, the PRS group in uh, California and Los Angeles, uh, University of Chicago, Champaign, Illinois, Psychic Research Section, um, and also several other places. And we're going to continue to grow that. In addition, we have made significant contributions of books so uh, to uh, several uh, Masonic libraries regionally and Scottish Rite Valley so that they can grow not only their uh, holdings, but also keep and maintain their members on a, on a good educational level. And we're going to be expanding that to some other libraries, esoteric libraries that we're familiar with as well. So we're going to be moving into a new phase for the next uh, few years which it means uh, those who would like to support us financially to make this happen, but also who would like to contribute uh, their books. We will act as a clearinghouse to help clear this material and get it into new homes where it will be used and uh, made available to uh, students on the path. Yeah, you're doing a great job there. Thank you for that. And uh, uh, well, 
listeners, many, many of you sit in the Northern America. So please um, consider of donating, consider of working with the Institute for Medic Sciences. That would be great. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again, Mark. Thank you. And um, uh, well, hope to speak soon again. So do I.
dir danken wir die Freude from Mozart Masonic Cantata dir Seele des Weltalls. So that means we thank you for the joy in our lives. It's the Arias title from the Cantata, the Masonic Cantata for you, the soul of the universe. And we know why he named it like that back in the 18th century already. Well, great. That was a great episode with our friend Mark Stavish. And hope you all enjoyed it as I did the talk with him, as always. It's such a pleasure to be with him and to talk to him. So um, I'm sure it was not the last time. And um, well, thank you. Thank you all for listening this ep to this episode. Thanks to Mark for taking the time to be with us. And uh, well, that is the end of this week's episode. What I still want to do is to talk to you about next week. And next week, um, to me, it was a discovery when I received that book, uh, which was sent to me by Inner Traditions, uh, by the book uh, by Marlene Seven-Bremner. Uh, Marlene Seven-Bremner, who is, lives in New Mexico and who wrote an extraordinary book on hermeticism, alchemy and arts. I don't tell you more. It just came out a few days ago and we will speak to her about it, about herself, about her path. And um, uh, well, I think it's going to be greatly enjoyable. I hope in the meantime that you will have a good week. We'll be back next Sunday with that episode six of our season nine with Marlene Seven-Bremner. And um, well, in the meantime, I hope you all stay safe and healthy and that the world and its craziness doesn't affect you too much. But let's, as it was just said in that interview with Mark, all try to do something that the world does not get more crazy. On the contrary, that we come back to the cosmic side rather than to the chaotic side. Okay. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.